Hey there, banditos. Welcome to a brand new episode for a brand new week. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Warren Phillips. I'm Mike Farah. And today we're bringing you a fantastic interview. Uh, this is a uh, mainly Mike, or mostly Mike, is it? Mike episode. on the mic. Mike, Mike on the mic, the mic episode. <laughs> it's never uh, going to catch on, guys. It's never. Whatever it is. <laughs> Bottom line is, it's just Mike Farah. And today we're bringing you his interview with none other than Paul Jenkins. Now, if you're not familiar with him, I'm pretty sure you've seen his work, either in comic book form or his work that inspired a movie. Talking about Wolverine Origins. I absolutely love this story. It was fantastic. And I will say most of what they used for the movie was pretty cool. Um, Regardless to say the rest of the movie, not so much. And for a comic book hermit like myself who lives in the past, uh, this is a really interesting interview to hear how he, his work on Marvel Knights really sort of righted the ship for Marvel um, with this amazing storytelling. Another uh, British creator that we've had on the show who's done some really uh, outstanding work. Yeah, like a number of those other British writers, he started on Hellblazer, uh, which seemed to be sort of a breeding ground for these uh, great new writers. And yeah, like Orn and Joe said, really made his mark at Marvel, uh, first in the Marvel Knights books with uh, Inhumans, as well as the Sentry. And then moving on to, you know, big runs on the Incredible Hulk, of course, as Joe mentioned, uh, Wolverine Origins. We also do get into a little bit about uh, video games, which is not, you know, my ballywick, but um, it was interesting to hear the storytelling kind of opportunities there. And so let's get to it. So this is my interview with Paul Jenkins. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, First question we ask all guests is how did you discover comic books? Um, a little bit like your cat discovered the uh, the blinds, you know, ran into them. Um, I didn't expect to work in the comic book industry, I'll tell you that. Um, I, I knew of comics, but, you know, I prior to, you know, us rolling here, um, I told you that uh, I had a pretty interesting upbringing. And um, that was because I, I was probably the poorest kid that I've ever met. My My father left when I was five years old. My mother tried to raise my brother and I. In a pretty crazy environment, uh, we generally didn't have electricity. We quite often didn't have food. We lived in a farmhouse sometimes. We li- I've lived in a caravan. I've been homeless. I have been all over the place. And so we didn't have toys, uh, particularly my brother and I, and we didn't have <coughs> access to stuff. But for a while, we, my mum cleaned the farmer's cottage on this farm in Kent, and um, it was a really interesting environment. It's probably what made me who I am as a writer and a creative person. In fact, it was probably super beneficial, you know, but you'd have these nights, you'd go to bed, you'd be freezing, you know, you'd maybe boil a kettle on an open fire and then have a hot water bottle and wake up in the freezing cold. A really interesting, different kind of environment. And we didn't have the ability to get comics. Um, we didn't have any. But my grandmother in London would find the old um it would be it would be the old um, EC comic reprints, you know. So you're talking about like Uncanny Tales and Tales to Astonish and things like that. We could find a book called Commando sometimes, and it was this tiny little digest book. Um, if you've ever spoken to Garth Ennis, I think that's one of Garth's things. The reason that we're all obsessed with the war and the Second World War and so on is because of those books. They were like little, you know, hero runs into battle, kills ten thousand Germans with one burst of his Tommy gun kind of books, right? You know, it's like. 
and then uh, we would get these reprints of the of the Marvel comics. We and, and so the only ones I really saw were Daredevil and Spider Man. I didn't really know much about anything else. I kind of was vaguely aware of the Fantastic Four, um, but we didn't have access to it. And so I, I kind of was a creative kid, and I would I would write and draw stuff, and it was very interesting. I never had any sense that I would end up in the comic industry. I expected to be a filmmaker. That's what I studied. Um, but I fell into it with the Ninja Turtles. I met the guys that created the Ninja Turtles, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, and I asked them for a job when I was over in the States, and they said, yeah, sure, we need some help. And then it, and it exploded. It blew up. Um, and I found myself working in the comic book industry as an editor and as a publisher, you know, uh, editor-in-chief of Tundra Publishing with Kevin. Um, and from there, I edited, like, Neil Gaiman. I edited Alan Moore. And I got to meet them and understand how comics were made. I got to be friends with those people and Rick Veach and Dave McKean, George Pratt, Scott Hampton. These are like incredibly brilliant people, Kent Williams. And seeing what was being done, I thought I could do that. And so how I broke into the comic book industry is, is the only way you can't break in. I went over to see Alan Moore. I was in Northampton, England. I was sitting in his, in his house. And we were talking about Big Numbers, which was this incredible book that never got finished, you know, that people, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz drew it and Alan wrote it. And it was kind of like Ag Alan's like Kubla Khan, you know, he never finished this book. Um, And I was the editor and, and I was look, talking to Alan about this way that he broke down. I thought, you know, the way that Alan does this, he, the way he's describing to me is how I would do it, which isn't so bad, I suppose. And I also said to him, Alan, do you think, I keep seeing comic books. I think they're just such a poor quality, in my opinion. I don't care about them. I don't want to read them. And he's like, you should have a go, Paul. Not kidding. So being naive and stupid, I went down to San Diego Comic Book Convention that year. And I went up to the editor of Hellblazer, Lou Stathis. And I said, uh, I hear you need a new writer. And he said, yeah, what have you written? I said, I've never written anything in my life. And for some reason, I think he thought I was so stupid and naive that I could thought I could go up against like Warren Ellis and all these other people that he gave me a shot. And six weeks later, he and Karen Berger called me on a conference call and they said, congratulations, you're the new writer of Hellblazer. And I said, oh, cool, because <laughs> I expected to be. I had no idea of what I had done. And that's how I broke into comics. Um, that's an amazing story, and we have to unpack various parts of that. Uh, but first of all, you had Alan Moore's stamp of approval, or at least encouragement. So uh, I'm sure that counted for something. Yeah, I was his editor on Big Numbers, and we he had this incredible thing. So for people who don't know what Big Numbers was, um, it was a 12-issue series that Alan had devised that was about causality. It was about fractal mathematics. It was about how... There's cause and effect. So, you know, if a butterfly flies in the Amazon, it can create wind that creates a storm that can, you know, create a tornado in Kentucky kind of thing. You know, it's like, you know, there's there's cause and effect. Brilliant piece of work. And I went to his house and he pulled out this massive chart that he had and he unfurled it and opened it. And it was every single character in a line and what would happen to them in each one of the 12 issues. Exactly what would happen to each of those characters. It was this incredible thing. And as I talked with him, the crazy thing was, I thought, that's how I would do it. And actually, as I make comics, I'm super meticulous. I break them down uh, a little bit, like I'm showing you right here. This is one of my like breakdown books. 
Um, I break down every panel. I break down what's said in the panel. I do the same thing for screenplays. I do the same thing for video game work. Um, I'm very prepared so that by the time I get to actually writing it, I, I feel like I've already done the work. And Alan was like that. And I thought, okay. So I had this great conversation with him about it. And I sort of said, you know, man, I I like I, I remember one thing that he said. And I said, oh, that's how I've been thinking it. Because I vaguely thought about doing it. He said that every page that he writes, um, he likes to make into its own story. So you could pick the comic book up, open up any page, read that page, and it would almost be like a story with a beginning and an end to itself. And it was so coincidental because I had just thought that I had invented that technique when I was trying to work. I had just thought that I would do that kind of thing. Oh, I think every page should live by itself. And then Alan tells me that's what he does. And I'm like, I must be under something here. I must be doing something right. You know? Um, and and I and I went down to San Diego and ended up getting a job writing probably the book, especially at the time, Hellblazer, that every professional wants to write. Everybody wants to do John Constantine. Everybody wants to be doing Hellblazer. And I got the book and I have no idea how I did it. All right. Let's uh, I, I want to get into Hellblazer, but I, I want to back up to your, your first gig and sort of even that, even before Hellblazer and the way you got that was sort of an amazing um, uh, uh, way of sort of breaking into comics because, you know, you had Eastman Laird who had invented Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which at the time you came in was, if not the apex of their popularity, you know, soon before or after. I mean, it was up there. Um, it, was it was before. It was before it went crazy. It had happened and they had sold the rights to the TV show and the toy. The TV show had just started. We were in a tiny office in Northampton, Massachusetts. It was probably five cubicles big. That's how big it was. And um, it, it took off and the cartoons took off and the toy sales took off. And we moved. We thought we were great because we moved across the hallway to a bigger office. And suddenly we we employed one more person. It was fantastic. And then it just exploded and if you had been there you know <clears throat> to be there when when the film came out and to see lines of little children all across the world and across the country like literally lining up trying to get into a movie theater to watch this movie was pretty incredible and you must have thought to yourself wow did i make the best move ever it, it may have been your only your only move it was your you know, you had gotten a uh, fantastic opportunity, but I mean, did it feel like, wow, I just stepped into a moving train or a train that was a, or a rocket that was about to take off? And so this is the bit where I end up being like really weird and different from most people. I didn't care. I was like, great, cool. This is my job. Like I grew up in a punk era in Great Britain, right? And truly, you know, living, growing up with having nothing. I mean, just, I suppose it feels like an old, some old dude going, I didn't have anything when I was a kid, but you know, just being from a deprived place financially, not having access to toys. You know, my mates all had toys, but I didn't, you know. Um, I lived in this crazy twilight world, which I've written about so much, where where I, I lived in two worlds. I would go to this school that was that had a lot of farmers kids in it, you know, like relatively well off kids. And none of those kids realized that the two Jenkins boys, me and my brother, would walk to school every day, about two, two miles every day, rain or shine, because we couldn't afford the bus fare to get to school. And it was great. Those walks we saw. I, mean, I talked to my brother even now. And I'm like, remember, you know, we'd see foxes and stoats, weasels. We would 
we saw everything. We and we always got to school. There were some kids that lived half a mile I couldn't get to school on a day when it was snowing. And here come the two idiot Jenkins boys like across the across the frozen tundra. And you know, growing up in that environment meant that I just didn't care. Right. I didn't and then and then punk hit and it was perfect for my brother and I. We were both these little punks that were sort of like, yeah, you know, you're not I don't care about a lot. Like, I don't do politics. I don't I don't like political division. I don't like the way that people argue about something that's basically for the enrichment of of people. It's just a self-enrichment scam. Politics, don't matter which way you look at it. And and I see people hurting each other and hating on each other because of, of Republican Democrat, you know, red and blue, or this Labour conservative. But it was always a scam. You know, it was never true. And so when you come from that environment and you fall into something like the Ninja Turtles and it's going crazy. Um, the reason I succeeded, I think, was because I didn't care. I was like, okay, cool. This is what we're doing then. I didn't care. I didn't care about the attention we got. In fact, genuinely, I was like, it's it's okay, relax. And even to this day, as a pro, you know, I'll often meet people that are like very nervous to meet me, or they'll be concerned about celebrity of some kind. And and I work really hard to just go like, it's it's cool, right? Like we see each other at eye level. We put our trousers on one leg at a time. I'm not a celebrity. And I don't do that stuff and I won't do it at shows. I'll be super kind and I love fans and I'll sign their books, but I, I don't do celebrity stuff, you know? So that, that kind of plays into my next question, which I, I assume I now know the answer to, which is, you, you know, you had these big roles early on. You were very, very young as, as, um, as these things go. I mean, you had, you know, you were editor in chief of Tundra, um, I guess sort of post um, this, this huge, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, you know, Bonanza. Um, I guess your sort of calm, cool, collected attitude probably served you well for being so young and having sort of the responsibilities of being in a larger role like that. Is that is that right? Um, I would say absolutely. Like I just I didn't sweat it, right? Like if you think if you if you ever see, I suppose this is fair, although you know, those of us who sort of lived through the punk era weren't really particularly that interested in the Sex Pistols, to be quite honest. They were like the commercial version of it, but they they were cool. They were okay, right? But if you ever see Johnny Rotten at the time, John Lydon now, right? I remember seeing him when he won a music award one time and he just got up on stage and he was like, this is a load of crap, right? He didn't want really want it. He didn't care, right? Yeah. And it was okay. It, was, it wasn't, he wasn't trying to be rude. He was just like, do you want it? Like, if it means something to you, cool. I don't mind. I liked him because he was really respectful to Kate Bush. He loved Kate Bush and he said really nice things about her because she's brilliant, right? So he wasn't a bad guy. He just got up there and said, I don't care about this. This is stupid, right? And so, you know, people who know me and especially my business partners are always generally annoyed with me because I've I've never been to an awards ceremony because I think they're stupid. And I'm just that guy. I, I just think that they're dumb. And so I... Uh, when I win an award or if I'm up for one, I just go in the back, you know, um, I was nominated for a couple of BAFTA, like British Academy awards. My mom was really annoyed because I, I just didn't go. <laughs> when I won an Eisner award, I just, I, someone p- picked it up for me and they, everyone sort of went like, he's not coming. So someone went up on stage and said, I'm sure he's quite grateful. Thanks very much. Um, and it's not, I, I hate to think that it would come across as arrogance. It's just I, I genuinely care about the stuff I make and the fans that we deal with and the content, right? And, and if you ask me to measure it, I think that there are three reasons to be creative, right? You either want it's either the creativity, the money, 
or the attention that you can get. And that can be the same for an actor, a musician, whatever. And I think it's fine. If you did it 100% for attention, I'd be like, cool, that's okay. That's like your equation, right? Mine is like, when I started out, it was probably 98% creative and 2% money. And I have children and a family now, and it's like 15% money and 85% creative. That's what I do it for. I love making stuff. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it's it's about the work. It's about putting out um, things into the culture and things into the general ether that has some resonance with people. And whether that wins an award or not is immaterial. Yeah. You know, I, I often talk about the things that mean something to me and having won an award, like an Eisner award or something. And I'm like, okay, cool. Right. Whatever. Um, but, but, you know, when we were with the Ninja Turtles, we had power, right. Especially with children. And I love kids, right. I love little kids and we could do things with, with make a wish. Right. And we did things. And I, I, especially even though I was a young man, I loved doing make a wish. And so you would get families whose children were terminally ill or very sick and we could change their lives. You know, we could change the way the things were for them. So you ask me what I care about in my career. I'm like, I care about that. Right. That was great. You know, what a great opportunity. And we had the power. And so we used the Ninja Turtles really well. And I, I, I had a, very profound kind of life-changing situation with a little boy that was terminally ill and i got an actor to go down and see him and and unfortunately you know the actor went in to see him and he was this close and he was going to die and you know he he kind of talked to Raphael for a little while the the actor was as dressed as Raphael, and then he then he he said well i'm i gotta go to sleep so i'm not being very well and he never woke up right he never woke up again and um the, the mom wrote to me and she said, you know, I know you worked hard to get that actor down there and do that work. And I want to tell you that that's the worst day of my life. Obviously, I lost my son, right? And I lost him and he was laughing when he went. So thank you, you know, for for allowing, for giving me something where, you know, as horrible as it was, I knew he was happy as he went because he, he fell asleep seeing Raphael hanging out with Ninja Turtles, right? So we had that ability. So, you know, when you look at it in perspective, you know, I care deeply about stuff like that, about fans, about creativity, about creators, but I don't care about like, <laughs> I don't care about awards and stuff. No. Eh, I mean, how could you, how could you be a human being and not put that, um, put that experience anywhere near um, an yeah. award or anything like that? That's, that's uh, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, glad you were able to do that. <laughs> Uh, uh, for that, for that mother and for that son. Yeah. Um, so let's see, so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, parlay <laughs> into something else, uh, but, but we'll soldier on. Um, so you were an editorial for quite a while before you broke into writing with Hellblazer. Yeah. Um, and you talked about big numbers, but I wonder even pre big numbers, or maybe you can use that as part of it. You know, what were you learning editorially or while you were an editorial, while you were an editor about writing? Um, were you soaking it up? Yeah, I was soaking it up. And it's a fantastic question. I'm glad you asked that one. That's a really good question because essentially <clears throat> in hindsight, now that I look back on my career, I, re- I realized that I now I know how to create for an editor and for a publisher. I spent six or seven years being a publisher and an editor, being on that side of the table. 
and knowing what it was that I needed so that I could do the business of, of, of it. Because, you know, it doesn't matter if a creative person is brilliant. You know, if, if you want to write your, fa- your magnum opus comic about the history of wallpaper because you like wallpaper, fantastic. But, you know, you self-publish that one because we can't do it. We can't make any money out of it, right? You can't repeat that. You can't repeat this work if you don't do things that make money. So what I learned as a creative person was how to do things that would be commercially viable, how to give publishers stuff they needed, how to deliver work on time. I mean, I pick a thing. I learned probably how to to do it uh, when I was in the publishing and, and editorial side of things, right? And that's that's positive. That that's really helpful. You know that I that I. I now know I've I've always known what editors and publishers would need. That means they come back to me and they say, "Yeah, you get us, right? Like you you deliver work on time. You do work that that means something to us as publishers." So so I'm not difficult to work with. I, I think I'm particularly easy to work with because I've I've had to do that job before, you know. And that must have also when when you talk about this Hellblazer move, right? And this Hellblazer pitch, um that must have given you some uh, you know, foundation for being able to do something that I think nobody else or maybe not many people have done, you know, pitching without having written anything before. Right. Uh, you were so. probably drawing on all that experience and knowing what worked and what didn't. Is that yeah, right? I think, I think you're probably right. Yeah. I mean, hindsight, I read the first pitch that I made to them. I read it recently because I hadn't looked at it in 30 years, you know, a long time. Right. And, um, and it was, it wasn't bad, you know, it wasn't great, right? Obviously, it's too wordy and loads of things I've learned not to do, right? But, you know, for a first pitch for someone that didn't know how to write and can't type, terrible typist, you know, it wasn't bad, right? And um, um, I think it didn't hurt that I was British. I think it didn't hurt that I was punk. My dearly departed editor, Lou Stathis, the guy who was the editor, um. He was the perfect person to get someone like me to come along and go, you know what? I want to do that guy. I don't need to do Warren Ellis right now. I want to, I want to do that guy. No one knows who he is. I want to shape him. I want to help him. He was a brilliant guy. Karen took a big chance on me and she was really helpful. She, I'd spoken to her briefly a few times. And so she knew who I was, but there was no sense that I would be able to do this. Those guys took a chance on me. How they, why they did that, I still to this day won't know. But, you know, Hellblazer gave me the step up. You know, I did okay with Hellblazer. I mean, I, I don't know that people realize that, that after all the years that it's been written, I've written, I wrote more episodes than anybody of Hellblazer. Um, and so I got this phone call from Marvel and they're like, would you be interested in doing superheroes? I'm like, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> my next question. How, how, did, how did Marvel Knights um, come calling? <clears throat> um. You know, I got this phone call from Jay Lee, and Jay and I had been talking about doing a Hellshock Hellblazer crossover, and we could never work out what to do. We we just call each other every so often, or see each other at shows, and go like, "Do you have any idea what to do with that thing?" He's like, "I don't know, man." But Jay was also in a terrible place. He'd probably put two issues of Hellshock out in maybe three years. He just was not delivering this work. He was really struggling. So I get this phone call from him, and he's like, "Do you know Jimmy 
and Joe from Event Comics. And I'm like, yeah, I ran into them a couple of times. They're good guys, right? And he said, uh, yeah, well, they've got this thing where they've managed to get themselves a gig at Marvel. I'm like, you kidding? What, those two? <laughs> those two reprobates? <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah. And they, what they've done is they've given Joe and Jimmy the chance to do like a little imprint at Marvel. And it's called Marvel Knights. I, th- I don't even know if they had given it a name, but they said they could do an imprint. And they gave him all the worst characters. And at the time, and people don't realize this, like they, they had canceled Daredevil. So, and they were going to cancel Spider-Man. That's also crazy. They, they couldn't give their company away. They were trying to sell themselves for like literally a million dollars. But the, the problem, as I understand it, was there was a company called Toy Biz attached to them. And so if you took mm-hmm. on, the, if you spent a million dollars to get Marvel, you were going to take on the debt of Toy Biz. You were dead in the water. Like no one could take this project on. And so they were actively trying to sell themselves and stuff like that. So he goes, um, you know, Jay says that they, they want us to do, they said, hey, Jay, I'd like you to do a comic. Uh, have you got anybody you want to work with? And he said, I keep talking to Paul Jenkins about doing something together. I'd love to work with Paul. And and they said, okay, fantastic. Let's, you know, great. You're in, right? So <laughs> this is this is a typical story of me. And so he calls me up and he goes, you know, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, that sounds great, man. Like, I do superheroes. And he says, okay, I've got good news for you. You know, we're going to do the Inhumans. And I said, that's great. Who are they? I've never heard of them. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything about comics. And because uh, I didn't read them when I was a kid, right? And he and so they sent me these little Jack Kirby stories, like two five-page ones. And I, I remember very clearly this. I've said this many times in many interviews. Um, that when they sent them to me, I called them up and I said, can you do me a favor? Don't send me any more because I, I don't want to read a load of comments. I just... I get it. I see what Jack did and I get these characters. And so, you know, you got Black Bolt and all that. I, I've got it. Can I just do it? And they went, okay, yeah, cool. Cause they were so desperate. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> they were so desperate. They had no sense. A creative corporation like Marvel or Disney or whatever, their last resort when they are at their most desperate is to get creators like me and let us just do the work. That's the last, cause they'll never do it normally. And so they just let Jay and I do it. And I pitched this 12 issue series and I'll never forget at the time, Bob Harris was the editor in chief and I met him for the first time in a hallway. I walked around the corner, Bob Harris ran up to me like a desperate gerbil and said, I just want to tell you something. And I'm said, yeah. And he said, I don't think Inhumans is going to go past issue two. It's going to get canceled. And then he ran off down the hallway and I'm like, nice to meet you, mate. Thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> nice to meet you. I, I, what was that? So it turns out there was a lot of inner turmoil. I think Joe and Jimmy had like it was were, were kind of threatening to Bob and 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 the establishment inside Marvel, but people were losing their jobs. I think Bob did at some point. It was really challenging over there, I think, you know, and, and Bob was probably being quite honest about that, but in his in his opinion. But I'm like, dude, what, how hard could it be? Right. One of the things I was asked all the time was how hard was it to follow Garth Ennis on Hellblazer? I'm like, did make any difference, right? Like, if it's comics, man. Like, what do you expect me to do? Be terrified because I'm following someone? Just write comics and make stories, like, and do the best you can, right? Why would you be scared of it? You know, I got the same about taking over Spider Man. Why aren't you, are you afraid? Because Spider Man's finished now. No one could do good stories. I'm like, right, I don't know. Write, read our first issue and see if we can do it. You know, crazy. Yeah. Uh, basically crossed off a question I had later on around Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> but, go, go ahead. Anytime. But no, 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 no. I want to. I, I want to stay on this for for a little while. It's. I mean, it's. It, it's crazy how um, 
you know, that, that run-in with, uh, that run-in with Bob, considering how much, how lauded, you know, Inhumans was. And, you know, I, I'm part of that group. It was such an amazing, um, miniseries artistically. I mean, you know, even if it was, even if it did not last past issue two, even those would win awards <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, but, remember, I remember when it ahead. came out. Sorry, Michael. I was, I was saying, I remember when it came out. The first issue here, and I'd been published as a comic book writer anyway. So I just, it was another book that was coming out, but it was my first work at Marvel. And um, second, actually, because I actually, in between these times, I ended up writing a Werewolf by Night for them. They kind of called me up and said, hey, we've got another project where you want to do Werewolf by Night. And I did that and I kind of enjoyed it. It was, it was fun. I did my typical kind of interesting character-based stuff, and I don't know if that was their their jam at the time, so it didn't last very long. But, um, you know, I pitched this 12-issue series of, of Marvel Knights, 12-issue uh, series of the Inhumans. It was very character-based. They they didn't change a word. They didn't edit a word. They never did anything. They just let me and Jay make it. And the challenge was, will Jay deliver it? Jay was at really like really at a point where he was not delivering content, and yet he managed to deliver 14, 12 episodes of that. I think in fourteen months, mostly due to Joe's wife Nancy. She was the editor, and she literally at one point drove down to his house and said, "How's it going?" And he said, "I'm busy right now. I'm working on it." She said, "I'm looking through your front window. You're not doing anything." And he's like, "Oh, you know." She caught him, and and he, and you know, so getting it out, of Jay. But Jay, I'm sure Jay really liked that because he really got back to working full time. You know, he lost that concern he was having. He was he was too hard on himself. He wasn't delivering work, and now he began to let things go. You know, you never finish work, right? You never. It's never perfect. You're willing to abandon it and send it out. That's that's the rule. You know, so it was it was pretty weird um, time, and and that thing with Bob was odd and there were some other people within marvel that were really challenging that were trying to but then they all got booted out and now joe and G joe gets made to be the editor-in-chief right and so like okay let's go what do you want to do so if there's one thing i've learned from these interviews uh it is if you can and you were just kind of offered this but pick a at one of the big two uh, if you're not going to do your own work is pick a character that nobody cares about except you Mm -hmm. uh, because the expectations are on the floor and you will generally have carte blanche to really go crazy. And usually it becomes a success. Right. I mean, all the way back to, you know, giant size X-Men and um, uh, uh, Daredevil, you know, Frank Miller doing Daredevil. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, happens again and again where you have these characters that have been lying fallow or people don't expect much about and you can come in with something that is you know interesting character based and it's gold and so yeah. um i just you know i think in humans fit, fits in there and is probably an exemplary um example of the uh, of that kind of movement even more so maybe the century right because I was going to move into that. Yes. Yeah. Well, what happened was that we we won an Eisner Award and they hadn't won one in years. And they just sort of like, what happened there? You know, like we we did four comic books. They did four in Marvel Knights. Punisher didn't really find its audience. You know, it didn't quite work. Black Panther got published for 50 issues. You have to understand how important that was. It's like Black Panther running for 50 issues with Chris Priest writing it. 
That's incredible, right? That is a triumph right there. They did 50 issues of a character like Black Panther. We do the Inhumans, and us, Yahoo's, me and Jay won an Eisner Award, and they just didn't know what to do. And then Joe, Jimmy, and Kevin Smith did Daredevil, and it sold through the roof. And what happened was that the owners and president of Marvel, like Bill Jemison, that kind of looked at Bob and said, you know, why, why aren't we do? How come these idiots come in from outside and all of a sudden they're selling all these books and you're not like, okay, how about we give him your job? And so they made Joe the editor in chief. And so they, they said to me, like, this is how, you know, we, we had this conversation a little bit prior to this interview, but this is how I'm that guy that does, I've just got my own drum, I guess that I marched to. At that point, they said, you want an Eisner, you can pick any character you want to do. You want to do Spider-Man? I said, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do the Sentry. Remember, I keep pitching him to you. I've pitched him to you for the last four years, and they were like, not that stupid thing. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I called Jay up and managed to persuade him that we needed to do the Sentry. And I had pitched that for years after I created it. I thought it was a perfect thing for Marvel. It was a Superman that fit into the Stan Lee sort of Jack Kirby creative ethos. You get you get Daredevil with this incredible ability, but he's blind. You get you you get the Hulk. You know the Hulk. His power is his problem, right? You you know Professor Xavier's in a wheelchair. Uh, you know these people have problems. You know Cyclops can't take his visor off because his eyes are blown. Rogue can't touch anybody because they'll die or she will assimilate their memories, right? And um, and I said I thought that a guy what what you would do with Superman was that you would give him a mental health issue. You couldn't do anything to his body, so why don't you attack his mind? So we made the schizophrenic superhero who, when he became the Sentry, also became his own worst enemy. He was his own worst enemy. And I, I happen to think that was kind of genius, right? I really think the Sentry was the thing. And we did it, and they bought into the sale of it, and even Stan played along and pretended it was an, a lost character that he had forgotten about, that he'd created before the Fantastic Four. It wasn't. I created it. But he did it, and it was fantastic. It was really great. The only problem was I, I'm not a very good liar. I'm a terrible liar. I'm like, you can see through me in a minute. I'm awful at it. I don't just mean lies. I mean, like, bullshit i'm terrible at it and um and joe would sit next to me at shows and people would say would what, what you must have been excited when you found this file of of stanley's work and i'd be like i, I did oh yeah i did right <laughs> so i was like i was terrible at it and joe used to like dig my, dig my ribs under the table and go like you gotta do better than that man but we sold it and the century came out and he became a member of the avengers and he did really well and and Kevin Feige, the now head of Marvel Films, told me at one point that he felt that the Sentry was their best movie. One of these days, maybe they'll try to make it. I don't know. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, we'll see. I, I'd love to dig in, or or at least ask the question, who, whose idea was it for that marketing angle? Because I, I remember that very distinctly, that that whole like, it's like, I can't believe they had something in the files that they just found. I, 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 I'm a sucker. Uh, no, everyone was tell. a sucker. Now, Wizard, Wizard played along. We got a picture of Joe's grand, grandfather and he, when he was in the Navy, and we said that he was a, an old comic book creator called Artie Rosen, right? Now, I made that. Which sounds perfect. 
I made that up because it was it came from a bunch of letters, two letters from back in the day at Marvel. It was Artie Simek and Joe Rosen, I want to say. Mm-hmm. I think That's that right. were their, was their names. Yeah. So I made Artie Rosen. And Wizard published this thing a few months before the Century thing came out. It was just an obituary about Artie Rosen had died and his, and his wife, Blanche Rosen, <laughs> had found all of his stuff and she'd sent it to Marvel or something. And they were, everyone was really sad that Artie Rosen had died and he was a, a legend, but, you know, he was he's toiled in obscurity or something, right? And so they helped us set this entire thing up. I want to say that's that was Joe's idea. I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that was Joe Joe Casada's idea. That was um, mine. I, I mean, it it worked. Yeah, it <laughs> that's worked. all I can say. It worked, and you know, I, I mean, it, that combined with you know that could be obviously just a sales ploy or a gimmick, but um, you know, paired with a real honest to goodness new character, great story. Um, you know, obviously, I, I think uh, I think the world of of that uh, character and that first introduction. So. Thank you and kudos. Um, So I'm going to get to my, how could you possibly follow a a person uh, question, which was for me, I was very into uh, the, and I'm not sure if you directly followed him. I think you did, which was uh, Peter David on his kind of epic Hulk run. And you had Hulk. um, Was it directly after him? No, it was not. It was after John Byrne. So there was this really challenging moment in the, in the history of the Hulk. My path had gone like this, right? Um, let's see if I remember it correctly. I, I, we did the Inhumans and we won an Eisner and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do the Sentry. And then they got mad at me <laughs> and I did the Sentry. And I spent maybe two years turning down Ralph Macchio, the editor at the time. And do, he kept saying, I'd love you to do Spider-Man. I'm like, Ralph, I can't understand. I couldn't even tell you what Spider-Man's about, man. I try to read the comics. I don't know what's going on in them. Like, I can't tell you what it means. I don't know what a clone saga is. I don't know what, uh, I don't know any of this stuff. I said to me, the fundamental core of telling stories isn't in that thing. I, but then one day, and I'll answer your question in a second, but it'll it'll kind of get you to understand how I got the whole one day. I thought, you know what? Maybe I should make that the story that he's so convoluted and messed up and he just wants to go back to where he should be. So I wrote it in the series called Web Spinners, and I'm really proud of those books. I did two of them with Sean Phillips and one of them with J.G. Jones. Yeah, I remember those. And it was beautiful, and it was it was very sad, and it was about how he accidentally he he is he's sort of like targeted by the chameleon who was his first villain that he ever fought, and the chameleon in the end just wants to come back and be him because the chameleon can't be anybody. He's not anybody anymore. He's lost his own identity. He doesn't know who to be. And he knows that the most interesting person that he knows is Peter Parker and his Aunt May and all that. And he's like, I want to be you. And they're on the Brooklyn Bridge where Gwen Stacy died, where this great mistake or whatever this was that Peter had already made. And the chameleon said, accidentally, he kind of says, you know, Peter, I love you. And he doesn't mean it in any romantic way. He means, I, I love you. Like I love what you are. And I, I, and then they both start laughing. And they're like, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? Right? And the chameleon says, I, I'm really glad that you're that you're happy, Peter. And he crosses his arms and he just falls backwards off the bridge. He, he kills himself because he can't live on. He can't go on live. And it was really powerful. And then Peter's so tormented by it, all of these deaths and tragedies. 
that he goes home and he falls into this fever dream and he and he dreams about all of this convoluted stuff, Gwen Stacy dying, Captain Stacy, all these Uncle Ben. And it takes him all the way back, right? All the way back to the first one, Uncle Ben, and he can't look at it. And all these, and in the end, all these old comic book panels peel off of him. And now there's just him on a rooftop and he's facing the vulture, Dr. Octopus, the Green Goblin. It's like him and the core guys. And he's like, this is where I want to be. And he's having a fight and he's punching with them. And he's like, this is where I needed to be. Because that was my statement. That's where he needed to be. Mm-hmm. And once I wrote that, I got it. They gave me Spider-Man. Then I went off and did my stuff. Well, at that point, then they were like, this is where I'm getting to answer your question in the most convoluted way possible. At that point, they were like, you're the fix-it guy. You keep fixing our stuff, right? We want you to fix something for us. We need you to fix the Hulk. And what happened is that Peter had had this incredibly successful run. John had come in and John had really done this thing where he had said, I'm going to take everything and I'm going to fashion it in my image and wrestle it away from what Peter had done. And it was wildly unpopular because Peter had spent 13 years building something. And then John was almost not, not trashing it. Right. But elements of it were almost like a, a fight between John and Peter. Like John was like trashing things that Peter did. And that didn't make any sense, right? Because you got this core fan group who who loved 13 years of work or 11 years or whatever it was that Peter did. And all of a sudden it's being torn apart. And there was one core thing that I saw. They gave me the comic books to look at. And I was like, there's a pretty crazy thing here. The Hulk, the Hulk in one of John's comics jumps up and smashes through an airliner and, and you know, 297 people are dead. And I'm like, it really doesn't matter if he apologizes or whatever happens in the future. He's a mass murderer at this point. And that's not like, I don't get it. That doesn't seem to be worth it, right? So they they asked me if I would write it and I and fix it, like, you know, fix the problem that they kind of had. And I said, yeah. And I said, I think the thing about the Hulk is he needs a ticking time bomb. If if you give it, if the t- clock is ticking, the Hulk is interested. You know, if you know he's going to turn into the Hulk or you know things are going to go badly or something's going to pressure him, then that's when it's interesting. And I think if it's just like him tearing up an airliner full of people that I don't find why that's interesting. If it's just him being strong, I don't think that's it. I, in fact, his strength is his weakness. Being the Hulk is his weakness, right? And so we gave him Lou Gehrig's disease and we knew that at a certain point he would have to, he'd have to die. And if he did, the, the Hulk would take over and he'd lose his body and the Hulk would, would own it. And that was a great ticking time bomb. And once we got to do that, it seemed to be pretty popular because the sales went up and people were like, we got our Hulk back again. You know, that's kind of like how it seemed to me. Although, you know, I, I wasn't too privy to all the sales numbers, you know? I wasn't either. I was just privy to the actual stories. And, you know, um, I think since speaking as a fan, speaking of a fan uh, of um, Peter's work and then your work, um, that it certainly felt like it got its groove back. At least there was there was a thrust of a story and then, you know, an, an angle that you, you gave that um, at least got it back on track and made it more uh, propulsive. And I think that's what you were getting at with the sort of ticking time bomb. And um, so I thought that was, that was great. Yeah. And then I kind of got to the place that I wanted to be right. The stories that I wanted to write. Um, There are, there's one that's sort of become, they say, (laughs) not me, 
kind of like a modern classic and it's him versus the abomination and it was something they would never most of the stuff i did at the time they would never let me write now it was pretty brutal it was a big fight it was a big confrontation but it was very much based in character it was based in like the 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 feelings of like hatred and regret and loss it was about betty dying it was about the abomination's wife being taken away from him it was about pain it was about all these things and then the next two issues were absolutely probably some of my favorite issues i've ever written for any comic of any kind which was two stories about how bruce banner he's been given this offer by a, a persona that lives inside him called the devil hulk which is this one that wants to just take over and the hulk the devil hulk basically gives him his ideal life it allows him to be with betty and they have two kids and a little dog and he plays golf with his father-in-law and he and everything's fine there's no problem in his life but he can't quite put his finger on something's not quite right about this, this is a, like a dream state that the hulk the devil hulk puts him into and the devil basically offers him and says you'll never know that this isn't your life you can have this forever and he knows, he's like but i know it's not my life betty's dead and so the hulk comes and tears this entire thing up and he becomes the hulk again and i just was so proud of those books like john ramita and i did those together those books were were really good the, those four books and then i was like i called up tom and i said i think i'm done mate I don't know if I got any more Hulk in me because I, I didn't do it for very long, but I don't have a lot of anger. I don't have a lot to to say about it. And and I think I've done my bit, you know? Yeah. Um, I do remember those now that you're triggering my memory. Those were fantastic. And I think uh, it's interesting that the most powerful issues and most powerful storylines of, I think the Hulk, um, and even as, just as a character are what's playing out in his head. Yeah. Um, rather than sort of the physicality that everybody knows uh, the Hulk yeah. for. Like the old Bill Mantlow crossroad stuff, right? That stuff yeah. is really cool, you know? It's really interesting. Exactly. So uh, moving on a little bit to Spider-Man, I, I wanted to ask about your collaboration um, on, I think, the latter book, because you were on one run and then you were on another spectacular Spider-Man with uh, Umberto Ramos, who you went on to work with uh, on Fairy Quest and other things. Um, you know, how did did you guys, because you've worked again uh, multiple times, uh, did you gel immediately? And what was, you know, I haven't really asked you about your sort of collaboration with artists and did, did he bring something that was uh, different than other artists have, or have you had kind of that experience before? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like all all artists' relationships are unique. I prefer the ones where I like I do something apparently that artists are sort of like weirded out by because I call them up and I'm like, "What do you want to draw?" Because I like adapting creatively to things that they want to do. And so many artists. This is what's so sad about the comic book industry and why I'm not a massive fan of the industry in some ways. Right? It's because yeah. comic book artists are like normally like writers don't ask them what they want to do. Look, it's a collaborative medium, right? The two storytellers are the writer and the artist. So I've always kind of explained it to people in like my college lecture saying, think of it as like, I'm the writer and direct, I'm, I'm the writer and co-director of a movie. And the artist is the director of photography and co-director with me of our movie that we're making in a comic. So we're collaborating fully. And this is what I want to do. And I'm calling up and I'm, and now some artists are not that interested in it. That's fine. Other artists are like, I love it when you call me, man. This is great. I get to put in things I want to do. Kyle Holtz, who I did some Hulk stuff with, 
Yeah. Always you say, please, please, please do not put any cars or vehicles in. I hate them. And so I do one in every issue just to piss him off. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good mate, right? Um, but basically, um, I want to talk a bit about Mark Buckingham, right? Because Bucky is fantastic, right? He's such. And so this goes to me at Marvel. I love single issue stories. I did them all the way through Hellblazer. I did them through Inhumans, even though you just collect 12 of them and it kind of makes a story. I did them on the Hulk. I did them on Spider-Man especially. So me and Bucky take over Spider-Man and we are told, and I quote, Spider-Man is finished. There's no way it's going to be interesting. You're never going to be able to do anything with it. And we absolutely disproved that with the first issue. It's about Uncle Ben, it's about him sitting by Uncle Ben's graveside and saying, and you find out that the reason that he became Spider-Man is because he he got his sense of humor from Uncle Ben. And they used to play little tricks. And it was like an old granddad kind of, because uh, Uncle Ben's an older guy, and little kid kind of relationship where they were friends and they played little tricks on each other. And then you find out where he got a sense of humor from. And right at the point near the end of the book, he says, well, Uncle Ben, you know, he's still talking to the grave. He's like, I don't think I can laugh anymore. I've got nothing to laugh about. And a car drives by and splashes him with mud and he starts cracking up laughing. And in those 20 pages, it was it started at the beginning and it ended at the end on page 2022. And we proved that Spider-Man was absolutely viable. And of course, you could write Spider-Man stories. So we did loads and loads and loads of single issue stories. And I'm telling you to this day, Michael, people come up to me with certain issues that I did with Bucky and they'll cry. There's one that we did about a baseball game. There's one that we did about a little boy, little black boy from, you know, a a, a kind of a rougher end of town who believes that his best friend is Spider-Man. And when Spider-Man reveals at the end of the issue, you find that Spider-Man is a black man underneath his hood because that's how the little boy would see himself. We all see ourselves as Spider-Man. And these are books that people come up to me even now and they just like, they cry about them. And so like, this moved me, this changed my life. You know, these are so single issue stories are like super powerful. And at a certain point, Umberto was doing the covers for Bucky and we, we were resetting and Bill Jemis was resetting within Marvel. And they called me up and they said, we want to change it. We want you to do 18 issues of Spectacular. We want, we want to bring Peter Parker, Spider-Man to an end. Bucky, Mark Buckingham is going to go on to do something else. And we would like you to work with Umberto and we want you to do 18 issues a year. You're going to be our cash cow. And I said, okay, cool. And the first thing they did, and this is when things started to change for me at Marvel. And I was like, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. They said, okay, you're going to do five issue series. And the first one's going to be about Venom. And I'm like, I don't have a Venom story. And they're like, we need one for the movie. And so I went off and I thought of a Venom story and it was a good one. It came out pretty well. And then we did a Dr. Octopus story and I was like, I just did a Dr. Octopus story. Like, why are we doing another one? And that's kind of how it started. We we did Spectacular and it did really well, but it was like they were telling us you need to write for trades now. And that's not me, right? I'm not the guy that writes for trades. I I like single issue stories and I like things that I know mean something. So we did really well with it, I think. Um, And we got to a point where there was a particular story about the Green Goblin and 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 um and Peter Parker, where they have this great kind of very violent con- confrontation inside a warehouse, basically, and Peter wins. Like Peter literally wins this thing and just says, like, go, you know, and and you know Norman Osborn has been defeated. And I think that one's called Death in the Family, and and that one became again like a little bit of a kind of classic for people. They were like, that's the story, that's the one. And once we had done that. 
you know, things were starting to change at Marvel. They were starting to say, I want a three-issue lizard story. I want to, I want you to, oh, another, another thing they actually asked me to do, they were like, can you, can you write the one where he gets organic web shooters? And I'm like, I don't know if I'm your guy. Like, okay, I'll try, but I don't get the point now. You're, you're like, we have never done this and we pulled this company out of bankruptcy. Why are you now coming to me and saying, I want you to do this story and I want you to do that one. I want this and that. We were great when you left us alone. Now all of a sudden you're telling us what to do. And I'm sort of like, I don't get it. I don't, it's not, not mad about it. I don't dislike it. I just, I don't understand why you're doing this. It doesn't make any sense to me. And that's kind of what we did was, was spectacular. I will say that, you know, you come all the way around and my very last issue is another one of the ones that I'm most proud of in my entire career because we got to do my last one with Bucky and he came back and we did a book called The Final Curtain that showed you the true reason of why he became Spider-Man. And it wasn't for Uncle Ben and it wasn't for Aunt May and it wasn't for Gwen Stacy. It was for his two parents because he was an orphan and he had never known them and he wanted to prove to them that he could do, he could be somebody. And it was really heartfelt. And I was so proud of that issue. I thought that was a really good way to sign off. I think it was. And I think it was probably, like you're stating, the end of an era. I, I, I dare say, and you know, I don't I don't keep up anymore, but I think around that time, with the trades being as popular as, as they were and everybody, you know, the mandates coming down to sort of right to this, this kind of, you know, more commercial way of digesting these stories, I, I don't see any single issues anymore. No. I really, I really don't. Um, They're hard and, to And do. that's the way TV has gone as well. You know, yeah. I mean, there, there really is. I mean, there are the, you know, law and orders, which are proudly – uh episodic but um everything has become serialized uh and there have been outstanding examples of that but i i think to the detriment of some others um some other ways of storytelling um yeah and what happened was that i got near the my my time at marvel i had just done I was now at a point where doing single issues to me i was like i've got this down i love this i'm the guy i'm the single issue guy I'm the guy that can, because I thought that Marvel agreed with me to some extent at the time I was wrong, that that the best thing you can do with your stuff in some ways is write really core stories. And we had done these mythos books that really got to the core of that. They were painted books about the origins of the characters. And, and so then I had just done Captain America Theater of War, and I did four books of it. And they were my four favorite books I ever wrote. One of them was a story that when I pitched it to Tom Brevoort, my editor, he started crying. And he said, you bastard, you just made me cry. I've done this for 35 years and you just made me cry. And we, 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 we wrote and drew all of those issues. I did a thing called Thor Heaven and Earth, which was four issues about Thor. And I was like, let me do this. And they were like, we, we want to do... I mean, I realized at a certain point that it wasn't going to, I wasn't going to stay there. You know, um, there were a couple of contentious things. There was something that was a bit contentious. Um, I did this book called band of heroes and it had a couple of gay characters in and they weren't willing to show them on the page. And I thought that that was pretty rough. It upset me a lot. Um, and and I, I said, look, if it was Batman kissing Wonder Woman, you put her on the front cover, like if it was DC book or whatever, you know, but two guys kissing and they can't, 
And that, look what happened in the end. They ended up going back and doing all of these kind of like, but that was, that felt like really forced. Whereas when I originally wanted to do it just as part of what was clearly a story, they wouldn't do it. So I felt it was very, I didn't feel it was right. I felt it was like, and it certainly wasn't right for me, right? I'm not that guy. I, and remember, when we started this, I'm the guy that doesn't give a shit. I don't care. So I went, okay, this is obviously not for me, is it? You know, yeah. I'm not losing any sleep about it. I did my time. It worked out really well. I would do it again if they let me do what I did again, but they wouldn't. There's no way they'd ever let me write those kind of books anymore, which is a shame. That's some. That's what we've lost, you know? I agree. I agree. It makes, <laughs> makes you feel weird for asking about this next question, which is clearly a story that was um, uh, to tie into other properties and for the trade, which is origin. Mm-hmm. Um I'd love to know how that came about and how that got how you got involved with that book because I remember at the time that was along with the Century and some of the other things it was kind of a, it was it was a really big deal. Yeah, that that one I've spoken about in a lot of interviews, but I'll give you the nutshell version. You know, I was asked because I'd been in editorial for so long, um, and I and Joe and Jim Joe. At one point, Joe called me up, asked me if I would like to come and be an editor at Marvel. You know, would I, this is really taking off and would you like to come be an editor? I was like, but buddy, I appreciate it. But, and I really did, you know, but I don't think I can do that any again, again, you know, I can't do it anymore. Um, you know, I feel like I'm a creator now. I feel I'm a writer and I don't feel like I would be very good going backwards to be an editor right. to try to do it. Right. Um, but we, you know, it was, a, it was a fair offer. It was a good idea, maybe. Um, but but anyway, you know, I knew how to do it. And so Joe asked me to come down to his first editorial conference as editor-in-chief. Because historically, what had been happening up to that point was it was basically when there was an editorial conference, everybody would go and be terrified because that was where they would get their pink slip. That's where people would be fired. And so they were going in and, like, terrified. And the nutshell version of it is this, that Bill Jemis was sitting back I was there watching this meeting happen and Bill Jemis came up to me at lunch. We went after, we broke in the middle of the day and he said, Paul, you're an, you're an affable guy. You're a pleasant guy. And I don't understand why <laughs> this, this, this is, am I allowed to swear? Cause I don't think I might have sworn a couple of times. Am I allowed yeah, to no, swear? That's fine. That's okay. Fine. We just got to check a box that says it's an check explicit episode. So this is word for word out came down. Bill came over to me and he said, Paul, you're an, aff- you're a nice guy. You're an affable guy. You're pleasant. And I get it. And I don't understand why you've spent the entire morning looking annoyed. And I said, <laughs> cause I'm such a punk. I went, well, Bill, it's because you're supposed to be the house of ideas. And every time I come up with a good one, you fucking say no. <laughs> and he was cool about it. And he went, I, I agree with you. And and I said, look, man, I said, how come I remember talking to Grant one time, right? And Grant said that if he like when he did Arkham Asylum, right, it did really well. And everybody was like, Batman Arkham Asylum by Grant Morrison, fantastic. And he said he went to DC to pitch, you know, Arkham Asylum too. And they were like, Well, I don't know, Grant. And he's like, Why don't you know? Right. And it's been like that with me, with everyone I know in this business. Joss Whedon said this one point at one of the Avengers meetings, like I've I've done 705 things. They've all made money, even the ones that have failed. And I go and pitch number 706 and I got to sit across from a 20 year old that does this. I don't know, Joss. I may may work or it may not. It's like, why? 
So I was a bit grumpy because I just sat there and listened to a bunch of editors say why they couldn't do this. And I said, Bill, look, he said, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, look, why, why can't you do the origin of Wolverine? Like if you, if you answer a couple of questions, like where was he born? Is he Canadian? Why did he forget? Um, what's his real name? Then you'll raise about 500 questions more, right? Like, why not just do that? And Bill said, I don't know why we don't do that. By the way, there is a reason why they don't do that. But I didn't know it at the time. There was a reason. And so, you know, we go over to Joe and we were like, Joe, well, we just do the origin of Wolverine. And Joe's like, well, you can't do that. And Bill said, why? And when about 20 seconds, Joe was like, I'll be honest with you, I don't know why. We just always don't. And Bill said, well, I want to. So then we pitched it to the editors and every single one of them was like, we cannot do the origin of Wolverine. But we ended up doing it and look what it did. Came out, was the num- it was the number one selling comic in 10 years. It sold out on the first day of sales around the world. Because you can, you just say you can't. And, and the reason, you know, I was talking to them and it's very much like my experience with the humans because I don't know anything about comics. Um, like when I took over in humans, I just didn't know anything about the characters. And so I wrote Karnak, who's the shatterer guy, the guy that can like discover the flaw in any, in anything. I wrote him as an advisor to the king because I thought he saw the flaws in inhuman society. And everybody's like, Paul Jenkins is a genius for that idea. And I was like, oh, I just thought that's what he did because <laughs> I'm stupid. And I didn't realize that. I thought that's just what he did. I, I suppose I just put two and two together and made seven. And the same was true with Wolverine. The reason they hadn't, because they didn't know why he had forgotten. They didn't have a reason. And I said, oh, I thought it was just because he had like a healing factor and you cut him and he heals. And I just thought he'd gone nuts at some point. And so his brain papered over the cracks and he forgot. And they went, say that again, what? <laughs> they didn't have a reason why he'd forgotten. And I just thought that was what the reason was. So they let me write him, you know. I remember, so two things about that. I remember that, um, I know there was no officially no reason, but I feel like at the time, the, the the sort of in the ether, the reason was that the core to the character is the mystery. Like, in other words, he's not Wolverine if he doesn't, if he has a backstory, because like Wolverine just doesn't have a backstory or it's just always ex- mysterious. No, that was an excuse. They didn't have a backstory. Interesting. Um, the second thing I, I remember about the time, and I don't know if this is really, uh, if you had this as sort of part of your pitch or in can the I back interject? of your mind. Can I interject before you say it and say, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Can get, I can guess what okay, you're going to say? Okay, go, go. That we I did can... it so that the movie people wouldn't do it. Uh, you got it. <laughs> yep, we did. We did it. We wrote the origin so the movie, to beat the movie people to it because they would screw it up. And then when they did the movie, they screwed they it screwed up. They screwed it up. <laughs> we had a really good reason why he forgot that he went crazy and his mind papered over the cracks in the movie. They had him shot in the head with an adamantium bullet. And I'm like, why did you do that? You had it and you threw it away. I don't know. So, yes. I mean, they messed up Deadpool too, but uh, they brought that back from the brink. Um, So, well, first of all, I'll put in an edit point here. I just wanted to give you a time check. It's been about an hour. Are you okay going a few more? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. If you're enjoying it or it's worth it, then let's go. I'm digging it. Um, I wanted to kind of take a little bit of a left turn. You've done a lot of uh, work in video games. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what is that like to write for video games? It's something that I have a hard, I'm not a gamer. I have a little bit of a hard time wrapping my head around. I know that a lot of the more sophisticated games now have storylines and they have these uh, scenes in between the play. Um, but how different is it when you're writing a video game versus comics or screenplays? Yeah, so a little known thing about me, maybe you know people in the industry know it, but but most fans don't realize this, that I am one of the few people in the world that moves across virtually all media. I do film, animation, comics, television, video games, new media, augmented and virtual reality storytelling. I just did a bunch of storytelling in the NFT space, right? The NFT space is this kind of eye roll, like, oh, here we go, right? But the problem was that the that that's what that was done with the business. NFT technology is fantastic. It's really good. There's all kinds of stuff you can do with the technology. It was just like the early days of the dot-com bubble, right? Like they got dot-com and everybody made millions out of it. Everyone got the rug pulled from underneath them. And now loads of people lost loads of money and everybody's frustrated. The fact of NFT as a technology and as an opportunity is fantastic because it's digitally interactive stuff where you can push new material to people and let it change. And there's all kinds of stuff about verification, ownership. There's great opportunities in NFT. So I'm a guy that moves across all media. And one of the media that I was brought into was video games. And I, the moment I arrived, I found the industry itself saying, you can't do stories in video games. This is mid nineties. And you know, the moment that you tell me I can't do something, I'm like, well, I'm doing it now. And so me, Amy Hennig, Ken Levine, J Dave Jaffe, people like us were like, we're going to go do story and it's going to work. I got called in to do a game called Soul Reaver with Amy Hennig over at Crystal Dynamics. It was like the Legacy of Kane series. And it's the biggest headache I've ever had. Amy and I sat in front of a whiteboard for three days and tried to make a story that we could deliver with the limited technology of the time. And we succeeded. It was fantastic what we did. And that game is, is a cult classic now because we were doing a story about Gnosticism about the Ouroboros, the snake that eats its own tail in a video game and, and in, in mid-90s. And, you know, if you'd have said that 10 years later, 11, 12 years later, you'd be playing part three of Assassin's Creed 2 where Ezio Auditore goes to Constantinople and rescues mosques for Muslims and that's your job, you would have said, there's no way I'd do that. But that's exactly what we we paved the way for. And And for me... I became really interested in innovating in storytelling. I became interested in when everyone said, you can't tell stories in games. I'm like, let me show you how you can. And we created all kinds. And the game that I did, you know, I've been involved in a lot of big ones, but the game I did that is the groundbreaking game that I think is probably one of the most emulated games because of what we did is The Darkness. And the story behind The Darkness was that I'd done a few video games and I'd also revived The Darkness for Top Cow Publishing and they owned the rights to it. So they sent me to Sweden on a contract that allowed me to basically be my own approval. I could create whatever I wanted to, and it was approved because I approved it, which is really, really, really unusual. And the publisher at the time was a small, well, they're out, out now, but they were Majesco. And they didn't get it and they didn't care. But the but the developer was amazing. Starbreeze had just done the Chronicles of Riddick, and they were brilliant guys, and I loved them, and they were great. And I get over there and I pitch him basically an immersive love story with the, the mobster, Jackie Estacado, the character in the comics. And it's this immersive love story. 
and they were like, we're doing it. So we did stuff in that game that you just do not do. We we had hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on things that were storytelling assets that had nothing to do with gameplay. You would play your way through the story. We at one point I said to him, why why do we do loading? Why do why do you sit there and it stops on a level and it says loading and you just have to sit there? Why can't we preload a movie that plays when you're loading? so that you can watch the story advance. And they were like, brilliant. And so we did stuff like that that was so innovative. And at one point, this my favorite, one of my favorite things I've ever done. You had a moment where I had pitched to them. I was like, look, the, 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 the problem with video games is this, Michael, right? If, if I say it's a movie, then Brad Pitt is Jackie Estacado mobster. But if it's a video game, then you are. You, Michael, are Jackie Estacado. Or if you're a little girl, you're, and or if you're, uh, you know, an Asian guy, you are as well. And if you're a woman, you're you are as well. Basically, you, whoever you are, have to be Jackie. So you have to identify with the main character that you're playing. But also, in order to make it mean something, you have to fall in love with Jenny. But you know, that's not so. I was like, I'm going to make falling in love with Jenny an achievement. It's going to be worth currency in the game. So you have to go in a house and basically play this kind of thing where you, instead of saying a dialogue tree, which I don't know if you're familiar because it's not a game, but basically it's like, here's four choices. I want to say this. We only gave you emotional choices. You only had two choices. It was either lie to her or tell her the truth. And you got near the end of that sequence. And instead of lying to her or telling the truth, it had one button only. And you had to press it. It was an X and it said, tell her that you love her. And when you pressed it, you didn't tell her and you felt really guilty. And about 10 minutes later, she gets her brains blown out right in front of you. And you're so angry and so frustrated that you didn't tell her that you loved her before she died, that that gives you a fictional justification in the game to play and kill the bad guys. And that sounds crazy, but 2K Games took over the game and they once took me to this, they took me up to Marin County to their headquarters. And they said, we're going to tell you something we normally don't do. I'm going to tell you the truth. And they showed me some of their measurable test results. That game scored, drum roll please, four out of a hundred in, in um, multiplayer. You could not conspire to make a worse game. It scored 10 out of a hundred in gameplay. It was projected to sell 350,000 copies. It sold 1.6 million copies because it scored 98% in storytelling, 95% in cinematic experience, and 98% in characterization. And it proved to them that as a piece of business, story was hugely powerful. And they brought all of that into the rest of their games, and so did the industry. And that, that video game paved the way for Bioshock, I believe, because my producer on it was the same producer that was on Bioshock. And when I saw some stuff show up in Bioshock, it was stuff I was going to do in darkness, but we didn't have the budget for. And it ended up, and I, I called Anthony up. I was like, you cheeky bugger. And he's like, hey, I'm your producer on both games. So, you know, it, we we got to, sh- to prove that story works and it makes money. And then I feel that that game kind of changed the way the industry works. So I love video games. Yeah. Amazing. I don't think anybody has, maybe I haven't sat down to had it explained to me, but has explained it in um, such visceral terms and in, in these storytelling terms, because that sounds amazing to me. Mm. And I, you know, I came up, you know, as a video game player during 
you know, regular Nintendo, Super Nintendo, and 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 not uh, you know the most uh, the most integrated I would be would be um, those uh, text-based games like you know Zork and things Zork. like that. And yeah, you remember Zork? Yeah, north, yeah, north, yeah. east, north, east. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's a there's a there's a monster in front of you. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and you got four. You got four choices. Yeah, none, none nothing in Zurich uh, ever had you fall in love with anybody. So, um, that's certainly a, a, an innovation. Um, so you might get me to actually get back into video games now that they that, that it's how story based it can be. You know, if you can ever get these re, I mean, you know, I did the Incredible Hulk Ultimate Destruction. I was brought in to do that, right? And it was like such a lot of fun. And one of the things that we we were doing things then that were so innovative. So one of the things I said was. Look, I want to be able to kind of feed information to the player, but I want them to be able to play as they're getting this information. I don't want them to like like think of the difference between two two things that you can do. Why bother making cutscenes where you just stop people? They want to move their thumbs and move the character. Why make them stop and watch right. a movie? That movie should only be a reward at the end of a, an achievement. So we did a thing where we created a tunnel where the Hulk has to run at full speed out of this tunnel. And as he does, he gets radio signals, meaning it took you 10 seconds to get out of that tunnel. That means I got 10 seconds of being able to feed information to the player, no matter what they do. And that's kind of a cool idea because it means that you think you're leaving the tunnel. You think you're in control. You're not in control. We're controlling it. So video games are all about the illusion of control that the player has control, which they do, but they kind of don't. And that, mechanism was absolutely became a core mechanism of grand theft auto you would drive in the car and as you're driving you know it takes this amount of time to get over there it's the quickest way you can get there and you and the the person in the car with you have a conversation or you're on the phone with somebody that was a core mechanic a core storytelling mechanic that we devised in the hulk and it was hugely emulated across the board amazing yeah i mean you do have you have control but you have constraints yeah, and I would say probably the key is to um, make the constraints uh, not noticeable, or to the point that they are not—they're not noticeable as constraints. They're just moving the story along uh, so that you feel like you still have control. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, right. Um, do you prefer one? Uh, mode of writing or what uh, one piece of uh, one medium versus another uh, weirdest thing yeah like screenplays I really like you know um, Why? comics are hard comics are difficult video games are long they take a long time the form of writing a screenplay is cool I like doing it right I like it a lot um, but but no right like any genre i mean I've, I've, it takes me back to talking to alan when i'm sitting around with alan i'm 20 years old trying to work out how can i even manage to be in the same room as a guy that's so clever right alan said to me one time i will never forget this it took i took i've taken this with me the whole way he said paul i could write a barbie comic if they gave me barbie to write i would write the best barbie comic i could and I wouldn't write it where they would think, well, Alan Moore wrote the Alan Moore grumpy, crazy, witchy Barbie. He said, I'd write, I'd find out who the audience was, a bunch of little girls that really liked Barbie. And I would make sure that they got the best, most interesting, reflective of them Barbie story. I would write it for them, by them, with them kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, you would care about the audience. Like when you write, you don't write for yourself. You write for your audience and you write about yourself. 
things that you know. And so I'm like that. I don't have a favorite genre. I don't have a favorite medium. And when you talk about like obscure characters, I'm like, I wouldn't care if it was Spider-Man or, you know, uh, the big wheel, right? I don't care. Just let me write it. I guarantee that I would do the best I could to try to write something interesting. In some ways, I feel that that's what Peter used to do on the Hulk, right? His body of work for 11 years on the Hulk was to try to at least give you something that was worth the money you were spending on it, you know? You spend $4 on a comic, whatever it was, $3, right? And he, he gives you $5 worth of entertainment every month. It's something interesting, something that he tried to do that was that was worth it, right? And so I I kind of feel like if it's a romance, great. If it's a children's book, great. And that's why I'm so diverse. I do bloody everything, you know? And you do work on pre-existing characters and you do you invent new characters and you do create your own work uh, you've done um one project that i really dug um and that continues actually i think you had just your third book come out was is fairy quest mm-hmm. through um kickstarter yeah uh you know how did that come how did kickstarter get on your radar and what what made you um take the step to do um fairy quest was it a long gestating story or did you kind of like kickstarter has been the most painful part of my entire career i've never had such a bad experience as i've had with kickstarter not through any fault of kickstarters and not through any fault of mine but unfortunately when i did the first fairy quest what what i mean i suppose i'm i've sort of like told a few people now so i don't really mind telling you and people will know about it what nobody knew was that my ex-business partner took all of the money right? For the first Kickstarter. So I paid for the delivery of that book by myself, right? It put me in huge amount of debt to deliver that book. And all that fans saw, right, was that Kickstarter, that it took us too long and they were frustrated and they were like, why didn't you send us the book very quickly? It's like, I I don't want to get into this. But that guy got in so much trouble that he ended up going to jail. I paid for it. Then I was like, oh, why don't I try to repay myself by doing part two? So I did part two and I raised the money and I got a publishing partner to do the delivery of the content for me. And they shit the bed so badly and they didn't respond to any of the fans, which is a huge thing for me. So now I'm over two, but I made sure that part two got delivered and we did the best we could. And nobody realized that like it, you know who it says on the Kickstarter? You know whose name it says in the book? Paul Jenkins. So as far as everyone's concerned, like that wasn't a very good Kickstarter. And I'm like, you have no idea. So I did the third one against my better judgment and COVID hit. And the printer in China, who I had paid for the printing, said, we're now going to charge you four or five times the amount of money to, to ship it to you. Right? This is about a year and a half ago we're not going to ship it to you unless you pay us this amount of money. And I'm like, screw you. And they're like, we don't care. We'll trash them all because we've already been paid for the printing. So if you want them, you have to, so it's now cost me about another $30,000 of my own money to get them in. I just got them here and, and we just got all of the things. So I'm now having to pay for shipping back out again myself. So Kickstarter and Fairy Quest. Fairy Quest is the most beautiful book, and it is the most cursed, miserable thing that has cost me so much money. And and yet, 
after costing me all that money and me being a guy that didn't just throw my hands up and go, I'm not sending the books out there. Now. I don't care. It's not, you know, I'll, it didn't work out. I did it out of my own conscience, make sure that fans got the books and all that. And that's the ultimate act of no, no act of kindness goes unpunished because people are like, why did it take so long to get my book? It's like, well, so that one has been really hard. Like I have not had a good experience and, and I will do the fourth one, but I will pay, I will work on a way to get the publishing, the printing, but I'm not going to do it through Kickstarter. No way. I'll print it and get it made, right? And then when I print it and get it made, I I will then be able to sell it, but I'm not going to do a Kickstarter thing to raise money for it because I I can't go through that again. I don't blame you. I don't blame you one uh, one bit. a lot of the, people, a lot of people, kind of do. There, you no, know, no. I, yeah. I, I cannot. I, I can. You know, I can understand their point of view yeah, as well too. because yep. their point of view, like mine, if I had not interviewed, is fairly myopic. You yeah. know, in terms of you know, I'm I'm doing a transaction here. I love your work, uh, and I want it as soon as possible. And probably does not. You know, nobody does the research into the context and whatever else. But um, I, I, I don't blame anyone for being frustrated about fairy quest. I'm the most frustrated, you know, I don't blame anyone for being, because it's taken way too long. Right. And I, I have now all the books upstairs. They're in my house. And, and um, you know, we're, we're, I literally just talked to my assistant today where we just got, so it took so long to do that, that uh, we couldn't get our shipping information out of Kickstarter it had expired. So we had to petition them to send it to us and we had to go through a bunch of stuff. So now we finally got all the CSV files of everybody's name and address. So now I've got all the packing material. I've got all the stuff. And now I've got to like spend the next couple of weeks, like packing up books and sending them out at a cost to me of about $30,000, no, about 35 actually in the end. So, you know, Thanks. labor of love lesson, not really learned apparently because I did it three times, but it's just one of those things, you know, what can you do? Um, the alternative was for me to just say, yeah, I'm not going to throw my hands up. Didn't work out. Sorry, everyone, you don't get a book. Um, but I'm not that guy, right? I want to get the people their books that they paid for. That seems only fair, even if it costs me hugely. That's just the way it is. And no one would have known that my first Kickstarter, the money all got taken. Right. They wouldn't have known, right? They just got the book. They didn't know. Um, well... Probably cold comfort with all of that, but uh, the book, the works, um, are great. I mean, yeah. I think they're fantastic, and and you clearly have um, an audience that enjoys them so much that they're getting frustrated not having them. <laughs> yeah, right. It's true. It's true, and I understand. Um, but, but yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we didn't cover everything because I think it's fairly impossible to do so uh, at least without having like half a day, but, um, and you've, you know, you've, you've done a lot of interviews and you've, you know, told a lot of these stories before, but I wanted to give you the opportunity. I'd love to know if there is a work of yours that you're particularly proud of that gets overlooked or doesn't get the um, due that you think is due. (laughs) Yeah, there are a couple actually. And that's a good question. Again, I like that one. There's one very strange series that I did for uh, for Boom mm-hmm. called Deathmatch. And it has just the most awful title, Deathmatch. 
I hated it. <laughs> I didn't call it deathmatch. And it's really clever. Like it's really cool and interesting. It brings up it, it's Hunger Games with superheroes, and they get put in this thing, and you, it's a mystery. And then you get to issue eleven of twelve. In a sense, it is a it is a twelve issue story, and and it turns it on its head, and you go like, "Whoa, I didn't see that coming." And then issue twelve turns that on its head, and you're like, "What just happened? That is like madness." I was really proud of that story. Deathmatch is definitely one of them. Um. The best and my favorite work that I ever did for Marvel was Captain America Theater of War. And I defy anyone to read those and not cry because they're all about the play of the common soldier. Why it's meaningful to me is that three of my great-grandfathers were lost in the First World War. I come from a family where my father was in the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry. The plight of the Pikey. The Pikey's like, you know. You know why they're called pikeys? Like why travelers and like tramps and hobos and gypsies. You know why they're called pikeys? Because they would be given a pike and put in the front row in the Civil War. They're the ones that get killed. And I come from a family of pikeys, right? My the Welsh Guard and the Duke of Cornwall's like infantry are the first to die, especially the Duke of Cornwall's like infantry. They're the ones that get like massacred all the time. And so writing about the plight of the common soldier. But what was so interesting about that was it was a love letter to the United States military written by a British guy. And one of my favorite reviews, I don't care about reviews that much, but my probably one of my favorite ever reviews was very simple. And it was from the point of view of an American, and it said it took a British writer and an Italian artist to teach me the true meaning of American patriotism, because that's what it was about. And I was like, man, I was proud of that. Um, so I think that's that's another one. And... I think, well, I wouldn't say Revelations that I did with Umberto is is not seen, but Revelations is also, when when that book came out, the internet was in full swing, you know, it was a time when everybody could now share on message boards. And five of the six issues came out and not one person had guessed what the ending was. And so everybody's like, it's obvious what they're doing and all this. Nobody, nobody saw what was coming. And when issue six came out, there was this round, resounding silence of like, whoa, you know, that was unexpected. So I think those three, Deathmatch, Captain America, Theater of War, and Revelations are probably ones that people could go to and probably enjoy, I think, you know? Yeah. Those sound like uh, certainly proud moments. Um, I will, uh, no, I, I've read at least one of them, and uh, but I want to seek out the other two and uh especially with the endings uh yeah. well, well now i'm sort of primed for something to happen but i probably won't be able to guess it so you won't guess it <laughs> <laughs> uh well paul it's been a great uh conversation i'd love to know what um what you're doing currently or what uh you know fans of yours can look forward to in i don't know the next few months to half a year i've got I, I, you know, I, ha I hadn't done comics for a while, right? Because I, I, I love comics and I don't like the industry. And I'm my own person and I, I work in video games, film, animation. I do all this other stuff. Funnily enough, I just started doing comics again. I am working on a project for Kevin Eastman, the Ninja Turtle creator. He's got this little series of characters that he created and I'm writing those up as comics right now. Uh, they're fun. They're just totally stupid. 
sophomoric humor. It makes me happy. Oh, got one more book for you, by the way. If any of you ever see Sidekick by myself and Chris Marino, that will blow your socks off. Sidekick is the best. It's the most fun you can have with your clothes on. Um, I'm also about to do a book for a mainstream pub, not Marvel or DC, but a, a publisher. And I haven't done a book like that. I'm about to go and do something that's pretty well known. So I, I can't say what it is because they haven't announced it. I don't think that's fair of me to say what it is. Um, but it's actually weird. It's a time where I'm actually getting back to doing some comics and I'm about to go take on a comic project, um, that moves in the NFT space. Cause the problem with NFTs, like I said, was there was a big cash grab kind of stupid thing. Everybody's rolling their eyes going, Oh, NFTs. But in fact, it's going to be here. So I'm actually living in the NFT space right now. There's some projects right there and it will, it, what will happen? It will be like .com. It will just come back around again and people go, Oh, I get why NFTs work. It's like, it's almost like saying, I'm not going to do streaming television. It's like, yes, you are. I'm not going to do CDs. Yes, you are. I'm not going to use my inter- my credit card to buy things on the internet. Yes, you are. You're saying you're not going to right now because you're angry about it because you don't like change, but you'll be doing it in five years anyway. You'll have NFTs in your life and you'll, you will have it anyway. You can't do anything about it. So it's going to happen. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm like innovating over there. You got to let the kinks get worked out. Yeah. You know, the, let the pets.com of the world <laughs> sort of, uh, yeah. Leave them behind. and The kinks were bad. I mean, everybody rug pulled. A bunch of 20-year-olds made a load of money off of people that were gullible. It was stupid. But what yeah. can we do? Hey, welcome back. That was Mike on the mic. Hope you all enjoyed <laughs> that interview. We certainly did. Uh, but seriously, uh, it was a real cool interview. Uh, I loved learning about him. Didn't really know too much about him other than, you know, kind of the big name work that he's done. But very interesting guy. And as always, Mike, a great job. Yeah, Mikey, another uh, home run. And I'm learning a lot. I'm learning that the comic books after 1993 are interesting and well-written. And uh, Paul Jenkins is a, is a big part of that because these stories that he spoke about uh, are fascinating. And they really changed uh, a lot of the trajectory of the, the characters going forward. Well, thank you, fellas. And yes, you're right, Oren. There, there is some quality after 1993, believe it or not. And Paul is a big part of that. He He's written some big books and uh, done a lot of great work uh, in the realm of storytelling, as we said, both comics, video games, and I think he's done other media as well. So uh, I had the true pleasure of uh, interviewing him. would love to have him back. And uh, that'll do it. So thank you all for listening. Thank you all for viewing if you're on YouTube. And we will see you next time. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S dot com. 
And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.